I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We will be reading verses 1 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And as we come to read God's inspired and infallible word, would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we ask that you would mysteriously enable us to set aside the cares of the world that we bring with us here, and also help us by the light of your word to see those cares through the lenses of what you have said, that we would bring our entire persons before you as a living sacrifice, because Jesus Christ has come to be the once-for-all sacrifice for sinners, to bring us near to you. And Father, as it has been said, we have only a small beginning of obedience in this life. The very best of us are still mixed with weakness and impurity and are miserable sinners. We thank you that you are merciful, long-suffering, and you are patient as a father is patient with his children. And we ask that you would continue to work in us what is pleasing to you. And for that reason, for the, the work of the Spirit within us who indwells us, we also would go to work putting sin to death by the power of your Spirit and quickening new obedience. May we long for the holiness without which no one will see you. And it is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with your copy of God's Word as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, 
so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. As we, we, as we begin chapter 4 of this first epistle to the Thessalonians, we are beginning a new section of this letter. Paul is starting the second half of his letter to the Thessalonians, bringing it to a close. And as is the case with many, if not all, New Testament epistles, Paul has been focusing on the grace of God in Christ in the first half of the letter, and he's having a slight change of focus in the second half. As he begins that second half of his epistle, Paul is showing what the practical duties of the Christian life are in light of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. Now that, of course, is not to say that Paul says nothing of the gospel in this section. It's also not to, not to say that there was nothing of practical instruction and duty in the first half. They're, they're mixed throughout the, the whole letter and mixed throughout the letters of all the New Testament. It's simply to say that Paul has a, a greater focus, a relatively uh, greater focus on the duties of believers in light of the gospel he has just unpacked. And this issue brings up something for us to, to be reminded of as we read the New Testament in general. That is that Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord. He is both Savior and Lord. That is important to emphasize because when you when you receive the Lord Jesus by faith, you receive all of Him. You receive Him for justification and sanctification. You receive Him as Savior and as Lord. He is our Redeemer from sin and the Lord of our lives. And we may tend to think that I would just prefer to have the Savior part and I'll be Lord of my life and, and take it from here. But it's actually very good news that Christ is both Savior and Lord. Because can you imagine trying to live for God's glory without any direction on how to do that, being left to your own imagination how to glorify God. You, you would have no idea where to start. But the good news is that Christ does not simply redeem us from sin and then leave us to try to figure out how to walk in obedience to Him. He gives us specific direction for how to please Him. And also, Christ does not redeem us from sin and then leave us to try and keep his commandments in our own strength. As we just read, he gives us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who indwells us and enables us to keep the commandments of Christ. So Christ is not only Savior, he is Savior and Lord. And this brings up another related issue to keep in mind as we read this epistle and the New Testament epistles in general. Just as we saw that Christ is Savior and Lord, God has given us promises and commands, both promises and commands. God has promised salvation in Christ, and he's actually brought it to fruition. He's promised salvation in Christ to those who believe, and we are to believe those promises. But God has also given us commands in Christ, and we are to walk in those commands by the power of the Spirit. So God's promises and God's commands always go together, as, we, as we'll see in this passage. There is a promise of God and then a command of God. So the promise is you have been made alive in Christ, you have salvation in him, then the command, now live for his glory. And children, I especially want to drive this home for you to be thinking about this while you're young and let this, let this grow in you as you get older. This relationship of God's promises and God's commands, it's similar to, to life in your own home. 
You have promises from your parents and commands from them. You have their promises. You belong to them. You were born into their home. They love you, and they want your good. And in light of this, you have their commands. In light of the, of the love you have from them, in light of the favor you have, take the garbage out. Do your chores. You are a beloved member of this home, so here is how you are to live in this home. Notice that the promises come before the commands. You don't earn your parents' favor by doing your chores. You do your chores because you already have your parents' favor. That is the irreversible order. First the promises, then the commands. You belong to your parents, they love you, you love them, and they lovingly show you how you ought to live. And of course, as with all illustrations, it breaks down eventually, but I hope you can see something of that. That's what Paul is doing here. Promises of God followed by commands of God. We already belong to Jesus Christ by faith. We already have full salvation in him. And because we belong to him, he has told us how we are to walk in him. Believe the promises and obey the commands by the power of the Spirit. So Paul unpacks this in three ways. First of all, he speaks of pleasing God in the first two verses of chapter 4. Paul gives us his, his firm instruction, yet gentle instruction. He's saying, you must do these things. These, these are not optional. These are not things we've been redeemed from. We're not redeemed from the moral law. We were redeemed for the moral law. But Paul's saying this in, in such a way, in such a friendly way. I'm, I'm telling you this in love. You were created by God to be obedient to him. You were redeemed by God to be obedient to him. Notice how he puts it there in, in verse 1. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. So these commands come from the top. These come from Christ the Lord. These are not Paul's opinions. But that's not all Paul is saying here. He's saying we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Not only are these commands coming from Christ, but he's saying you are in Jesus Christ. You are united to him by faith. You have been made alive from in him. You were dead, and now you are alive. You were in darkness, and now you are in his marvelous light. So don't try to keep these commands on your own. You're, you're dead before you even start to do that. Keep these commands in dependence upon him. Walk in these ways by his power. And it's key to remember that as we've seen throughout this letter in the first three chapters, that Paul has been praising the Thessalonians for their exemplary lives. All throughout the first three chapters, he's, praising, he's been praising them, thanking God for his work in them. We see there again in verse 1 of chapter 4, as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. And what a wonderful encouragement that is. You have already received Christ. You're already walking well. But that doesn't mean there's no instruction that you should hear. My instruction to you merely is keep doing what you're doing. Keep walking in the ways of the Lord Jesus. Keep doing so more and more. You notice there that Paul is speaking of the walk of the believer, the Christian life as a walk. Now that you are in Christ, here is how you are to live. Here is how you are to walk in him. The Scottish preacher William Still puts it this way. He says, the point about walking is that you're generally going somewhere, and that implies movement. That's why Paul says, do this more and more. Don't stop what you're doing. 
keep doing so more and more. Keep walking. And the, the point, as William still points out, of walking is that there is progress. There is true progress in the Christian life. However imperfect, however small, there is true progress. Progress, of course, implies that there is a goal. Progress toward a goal. Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5 that we make it our aim to please the Lord. That is our aim. However imperfect, there must always be progress, and in Christ there always will be progress. But it only comes in the Lord Jesus. The Puritan Walter Marshall puts it this way, that the way to get holy qualifications necessary to enable us for the practice of the law is to receive them out of the fullness of Christ by fellowship with him, and that we may have this fellowship We must be in Christ and have Christ himself in us by a mystical union with him. So we know that what God demands of all men, we are required to do, but to go at the law, trying to keep it in our own strength, we are are dead from the beginning. But if we go to the source, if we go to the Lord Jesus, we we find the abundance of strength to keep his law and walk in his ways. Again, as Christ says in in John 15, he is the vine, you and I are the branches. Christ is the life-giving source, and the branches bear fruit only by being united to the vine. So Paul's point here is to walk and please God, but do so in Christ. Do not walk and please God on your own strength. Do so in the Lord Jesus. He's saying you have all you need to walk in God's commandments, so walk in those commandments, by faith in the Son. So he speaks of pleasing God. Secondly, he speaks of growing in grace in verses 3 through 8. In this section, we see that the clear affirmation of what God's will is for the believer. And often, for, for youth in particular, we ask ourselves, what is God's will for my life? Who should I marry? Where should I go to school? Should I go to school at all? What job should I take? What, what is the Lord's will for me in, in these things? And those are all things that, that can be difficult to answer and require much biblical wisdom and seeking wisdom from, from those who are older than we are. But here we have clear affirmation of what God's will is. Verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. So before you ask the circumstantial questions where to live, what job to take, what major to, to take in college. Look to this clear-cut will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. That is to say, be separate from what is evil and be set apart for God's glory. And of course, this brings up the wonderful definition of sanctification in the Shorter Catechism. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So in other words, what is sanctification? It is being who you are. Be who you are in the Lord Jesus. You are righteous in Christ, so be righteous. You are righteous in Christ, now walk in righteousness. Be who you are in Him. And of course, there are many things to say about sanctification, and our tradition is rich with, with great teaching on, on that subject. But here, in, in this section, verses 3 through 8, 
regarding sanctification, Paul focuses exclusively on sexuality. He gets to brotherly love later. Here he gets, he focuses exclusively on sexuality. And keep in mind what we said earlier about the relationship between God's promises and God's commands. We see that the relationship between those two things in this section. Skip down to to verse 8. You see the promise. God gives his Holy Spirit to you. And then sort of working backwards, go back to verse 3, verses 3 through 7, you see God's commands. Abstain from sexual morality, control yourself in holiness, and do not wrong one another. So it came backwards there, but you still see the, the, the relationship. God's promise, he gives you his Holy Spirit, then God's commands, abstain from sexual immorality. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, now live in sexual purity by the power of that Spirit within you. So this section is, is all about sexual purity, abstaining from sexual immorality. And of course, for a host of reasons, there is great need to talk about biblical sexuality in our day. One thing I would want to press home to you, though, is that everyone has a problem with sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is a problem for all of us. It is not a male problem. It is not an ancient problem. It is not a problem out there in the culture. It is a problem for all sinners. Think of it this way. When we think about our depravity, hint with the five points of Calvinism, when we think of depravity, we think of what? Total depravity. That we come into the world totally depraved. That's our sin problem. Totally depraved. That every part of us, the totality of our persons, is marred by sin. We are marred by sin in mind, will, and affections, which is to say we are marred by sin in our sexuality. So I hope you can appreciate that sexual immorality is a problem for all of us. All of us are sexual sinners, and we all need the grace of God for our sexuality, and we all need the instruction of God for our sexuality, obeying God's commands and seeing what He requires for what He has made. Very interesting background in maybe not in Thessalonica per se at this time, but in the ancient world uh, around the time Paul wrote this letter originally about sexual practices in pagan society. There were, there were various forms of sexual union outside marriage that were tolerated and even encouraged. A man could have a relationship with his wife, his mistress, his concubine, and then with harlots as he, as he saw fit. A man could have a mistress who could also provide him intellectual companionship. And the institution of slavery at the time made it easy for a man to have a concubine. And casual gratification was readily available from a prostitute. Where where does a man's wife fit into this picture? The function of a man's wife was to manage his household and be the mother of his legitimate children, the one who would would be the heir to his, his inheritance. There was even sexual union as part of some pagan religious worship. You could go to your cult and have sexual practices as part of your pagan worship. In his commentary, F.F. Bruce says, when the gospel was introduced into pagan society, it was necessary to emphasize the complete break with accepted customs in this area, which was demanded by the new way of life in Christ. So obviously, with that, with that sexual darkness, the, the ray of light from the gospel would shine very brightly in the, in the institution of marriage being God's 
one gift where sexuality is given and to be enjoyed. God has given sex as a gift to be enjoyed only in his creation ordinance of marriage, the lifelong covenant of one man and one woman, a a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus in relationship with his church. But it's not merely our, our outward sexual acts that need to be that need, be, need to be changed, but our hearts as well. Obviously, in this scenario in Thessalonica, in, in the pagan world, the gospel would come, men would have sexual relations with multiple women, and the requirement would come, you can only have sexual relations with your wife. That is, that is God's ordinance. But it's not merely the outward sexual acts that need to be changed. It is our hearts as well. It is our hearts primarily that need to be changed. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I hope you can appreciate there that he's not speaking about males only, that only males have problem with lust. Anyone who looks at anyone else with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And as we think about what Scripture says about sexuality, and I wish we had a lot more time to talk about it. Let us not forget that our chief end is what? To enjoy God. That there is pleasure in living for God's glory, and that there is greater pleasure living in covenant with God than in fulfilling our sinful desires. And not only is that so, that there is greater pleasure in living in covenant with God than fulfilling our sinful desires, there is greater pleasure in living in covenant with God than fulfilling our legitimate desires. Sexual union, even in God's design, done only in marriage, that is only a dim reflection, a picture of the, of the union of Jesus Christ with his bride, of the, of the intimacy that they share. As we think about biblical sexuality, we should not think that, that God is restraining sexual pleasure, that we should not think that he is restraining it. We should understand that he is giving us true sexual pleasure in its right place. And it's only on his terms that there is freedom to have sexual gratification as he has designed it. And for all those who, who look at the Puritans, who look at, look at Scripture and think that there is just sexual prudeness, that there is a, a sexual restriction from Christianity, you obviously have not read the Song of Solomon. You cannot read that book and say that God is a sexual prude. God is the one who made sex. It was his idea, not ours. God made sex as a reflection, a dim reflection, of the communion that Christ has with his bride. And that's what sex is. It is a temporary pleasure that reflects the eternal bond of Jesus Christ with his bride. It's temporary and it's not even close to the pleasure of, of, the, of the intimacy and communion that Christians have with their, their heavenly husband. And we, we should reflect on that temporary design of marriage and sexuality in marriage. There is a day coming when it will give way to the, the great host of the, the bride of Jesus Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The person you're married to now Hopefully they will, they will be there in the new heavens and new earth if you are in a Christian marriage, but they will no longer be your spouse. You both, 
in the new heavens and new earth will be united to your one husband, and the, the temporary institution of marriage and the provision of sexuality will give way to the ultimate, the consummate union and communion of Jesus Christ with his bride on that last day. God is the one who made sex, and he is the one who gets to say how sex is to be enjoyed. And speaking of this, this relationship of God's promises and commands, think of how Paul summarizes sexuality in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He starts with a command, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So can you see something of the difference between sexual immorality, as we see it here, and sexual purity? The difference between thinking, well, this is who I am. This is how I was born. I am I'm meant to have communion with someone of my own gender or of, of, of illicit pornographic desire or whatever other manifestation of sexual sin. That versus this is who God made me to be. You may be born in a sinful way. That, that's not the point. God has come in the Lord Jesus to redeem you from how you are, to redeem you out of darkness, and to bring you into his light. Do you see the difference between the sexual immorality, the way of thinking of, it feels so good, it must not be wrong, versus, I want the superior pleasure of knowing my creator and redeemer through Christ Jesus. David Pallison has a very helpful story about a man he counseled who was struggling with pornography addiction and all the, all the related sins uh, accompanying it. This man became a, a true believer about the age of 10 and had a 25-year struggle off and on with, with pornography addiction. He tried all kinds of techniques, all kinds of practices to rid himself of this. He tried accountability, which helped and did work for a while. He tried exercise plans, he tried diet plans, he tried cold showers. Uh, he even read a, a self-help book that said that pornography is not that bad, you, you should just give in to it. And thankfully he knew and, and was able to think biblically that that is not a helpful bit of counsel. So finally, after this 25-year struggle, trying just about every technique in the book, he, he, sees, he sees David Pallison and after some time getting to know this, this person, Pallison asks him, so what are the circumstances in which you are tempted? What, what are the, the surrounding issues or, or circumstances? Write those down and, and come back to me next week. And, and the man said, well, I don't need to think about it or write it down. I already know. It's always on Friday or Saturday night. And, and Pallison's thinking, okay, this is awesome. What, what, why? What, how do you know that? What, what are the circumstances Friday and Saturday night when you are tempted. And he said, I get home from work after a week of work, and I think all my single friends are out with their, with their girlfriends, all my married friends are hanging out together, and I'm all by myself. And so I'm alone in my apartment, and then I throw this pity party for myself, and I think I've done all these good things for God, and he, he, does, he hasn't given me a, a spouse or a girlfriend yet. And so I throw a pity party for myself, and it devolves into sexual sin. So you see that for, for this person, for, for all of us, 
There's more to sexual sin than sexual sin. You, you see what I'm saying? There were other issues surrounding that, that, that sexual morality for this, for this man. There was the issue of, I've done all these things for God, and I was supposed to get the, the treasure. I was supposed to get the good thing, a wife or a girlfriend, but God hasn't given it to me yet. I was supposed to do this for God, and he was supposed to give me something, and he hasn't come through, and I'm mad at God about it. So that's another, another entry point to get into how to deal with sexual sin. Feeling sorry for yourself, feeling lonely that I'm the only person who doesn't have a wife or a girlfriend, and then, and, and then devolving into sexual sin that way. So you see, there are many things surrounding not just sexual sin, but all sin. There are many ways to get at it, many motivations to it. Loneliness, I'm the only one without a spouse or without a girlfriend or in a bad marriage or, or whatever else that I, I feel badly and I want to feel good, and sexual immorality feels good, so I want, I want to pursue that. That I've done all these good things for God, I deserve a break, and then I'll, I'll, I'll go into sexual sinful gratification. So there are all kinds of, all kinds of other sins surrounding this one sin. But, and so it is a key element of our sanctification to walk in sexual purity rather than sexual immorality. And of course, to sum up a, an enormous topic that we, we should be talking about in our homes because it is out there and, and we, are, we are doing it to some extent and we need to talk about it, not just from the pulpit, but from in our homes, that it is only by the power of the Spirit that can get, give us and show us the superior pleasure of knowing Christ Jesus that will crowd out the inferior sinful pleasure of sexual immorality. Well, very briefly, uh, Paul deals also with loving one another. Thirdly and finally, in verses 9 through 12. Again, we, we see the, the relationship of God's promises and his commands. You see there in verses 9 and 10, God's promises. Look there at, ver- at verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. That's the promise. You've been taught by God. And then the commands in verses 11 and 12. Do these things more and more. Live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. Promise, then a command. You now have a new heart to love one another instead of biting and devouring one another, tearing each other down, hating each other. You have a new heart. Now love one another in these ways more and more. You have been taught by God. That is to say that that God is the author of your love for one another. God himself is love, and he, he reflects his love in our hearts. As Paul says in Romans 5, verse 5, Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So God has shown his love to you. He has redeemed you from sin, and he's given you a new heart that can love truly. And so the command comes, love as you have been loved. Take what has come down to you and bend it outward to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course, Paul has already praised them for this, for their exemplary love for one another. In chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, when he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Love for one another, however imperfect, 
love for one another is evidence that you have known the love of God in Christ Jesus. Wherever there is true obedience in the believer, we are to walk in it more and more, cultivate it more and more. Whatever is good, put it to practice more. So Paul gives the the specific directions for brotherly love, verses 11 and 12. Live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. Perhaps the context will help us understand this better for these, for these uh, particular commands. It's possible that the Thessalonians were, were restless about the return of Christ. There may have been a, a sort of quitting your job, selling all you have, hunkering down in your, in your bunker so that when Jesus comes back, you'll be ready. Some of the believers there tended to ignore their regular business, maybe thinking Jesus could come back at any second, so it doesn't matter what I do. So Paul gives more specific instruction on the return of Christ in the section that follows, which we'll see in in a couple weeks. But here he's simply saying, don't stop what you're doing. Keep living faithfully. Keep doing the ordinary things that you know are right. Don't, Don't be idle. Mind the affairs you've been given. Because it's not loving to your neighbor if they have to pick up your slack. If you stop working, someone else has to work. And that's not loving to your neighbor. If you're not tending to your own affairs, you're only bringing down the whole body. When one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. So don't do that to the body. It's not, it's not in, account, in accord with brotherly love. So you, you have been taught by God. You know the love of God in Christ. Bend that outward to your brothers and sisters. Love as you have been loved. Of course, much more to say on, on each of these points, but just a few thoughts by way of application Putting, putting this word to work, especially as we think of the, the relationship of God's promises and his commands. I want to bring a, a quote to you from, from Thomas Chalmers, uh, one of the old uh, great thinkers in, in Puritan Reformed theology, an article of his called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In that article, he speaks of how there is never going to be in our own strength, we will, we will never have enough power to keep God's commands on our own. That, that our hearts deceive us into thinking that sin is more pleasing than what God commands. That what I want to do is more pleasurable than what God commands of me. And he rightfully points out that we can't just remind ourselves that we, we know we should do what God says, that we, that we shouldn't disobey Him. We, we know that's true. It's insufficient to grow in grace just to remind ourselves of those things. Chalmers says that the only way to get rid of an unholy affection, an affection for an unholy thing, is to replace it with a holy affection, affection for what is holy. It is not enough to know that sin is bitter. I know I shouldn't do this. I know God commands I, sh- I shouldn't do these things. It's not enough to know that sin is bitter. We must come to know that Christ is sweet and that the holy affection for Christ will crowd out unholy affection for what is against his word. Chalmers puts it this way. To estimate the magnitude and the difficulty of such a surrender of trying not to love the world in in your own strength, let us only think that it were just as arduous to prevail upon us not to love wealth, which is but one of the things in the world, as to prevail on us to set willful fire to our own property. This we might do with painful reluctance if we saw that the salvation of our lives hung upon it. 
but this we would do willingly if we saw that a new property of tenfold value was instantly to emerge from the wreck of the old one. You see what he's saying there? It is not enough to convince a sinner, burn your house down. It's the right thing to do. Well, then you add the the reason to that. Burn your house down because your salvation depends upon it. Okay, I want want to be saved. I'll, I'll, I'll burn my house down. Fine. But if you show the sinner that if you burn your house down, a new property will spring up that is worth ten times your house now, you would do it willingly. So in the same way as we talk about wanting to please God, of of walking in God's commands because of the promises we have in Christ, especially as we think about sexual immorality, you look at the fading, filthy pleasure of sexual immorality versus the surpassing, the, the fullness of pleasure that you were made for, that you were redeemed for in the Lord Jesus, in whose image you are, and for whose service you exist. Sexual pleasure will look like garbage, the garbage that it is. You will burn your house down if you know that the property of ten times the value will come up in its ashes. You would willingly put things to death if you knew the the fullness and the superior pleasure that would come in its wake. So don't try to drum up the strength on your own to hate sin and keep God's commands. Look to the Lord Jesus. Abide in the vine. The branch cannot bear any fruit on its own. It can only bear fruit in the life-giving source. Look to his fullness, his superior love, the superior pleasure to be found in him alone. He is the original. Everything else is just is a copy or a sinful copy at worst. Affection for holy things is, is the only thing that will crowd out affection for unholy things. So pray and seek for this holy affection. As we sang this morning in our last hymn, Jesus, source of lasting pleasure, truest friend and dearest treasure, peace beyond all understanding, joy into life, joy into all life expanding. Humbly now I bow before you, love incarnate, I adore you. Worthily let me receive you, and so favored, never leave you. Amen, and may God be pleased to add his blessing to the preaching of his word.